Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. Before we get started with today's episode, which is episode 91, I have an announcement that will explain a little bit about what's going on with the podcast. So I have received the proofs of the beast, <laughs> the monster history of Byzantium I've been writing for so many years. So that means the book is in production. It might come out around uh, October. Correcting a thousand pages of proofs is mind-numbing, but also necessary. All right, this means that for a few years now, I've been immersed in the, you know, nitty-gritty, the down-in-the-weeds of, of Byzantine history on a sort of very granular level. And I've pulled a lot of the episodes from the readings that I've done for that research. Now that that is done... And I never want to hear about Byzantium again. <laughs> no, I, I do need my mind to take a bit of a break from those kinds of topics. And just for the purposes of intellectual sanity, um, I, I'm reading in all kinds of other areas from modern history to you know, whatever. And a little bit of that is going to be reflected in the podcast, too. So for a little while, I'll be leaning on the friends part of the title, um, less than the Byzantine. But there's always going to be a connection, um, for sure. Um, also, my next book is on the image um, and perceptions of the Eastern Empire in the West, so in Western Europe, from late antiquity down to World War II. I want to explain how it is that we got this idea of you know Byzantium in the first place, and uh, so that is involving me in all kinds of very interesting Western readings that aren't what uh, Byzantinists work on for the most part. But anyway, uh, be prepared for some reaching out. Today's episode is a little bit along those lines um, in the sense that it is based on a book that I randomly saw at a conference and, and bought and read, and it was phenomenal. And I thought, wow, <laughs> we should talk about this. But you will see that it is related to the broader history of the Roman Empire. And the book is by Robin Fleming, who is a professor of history at Boston College, and is called The Material Fall of Roman Britain, uh, focusing on the 4th and 5th centuries AD. It is specifically an attempt by a historian to use all of the available archaeological data to explain how the material circumstances of people's lives changed when the Roman state withdrew from Britain in the early 5th century. And the changes were immediate and wide-ranging, and in many respects kind of catastrophic, though there were winners from that. But it did get me thinking that nothing comparable really ever happened in any of the territories of the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, obviously, the East goes through phases of, of decline and sometimes fall and resurgence and so forth. But there's never really a period when the entire apparatus of the state is withdrawn and no other is put in its place. And this causes a sort of collapse of the whole economic order and therefore people's materials, material lives change you know, drastically and on a very short time scale. Kind of similar to, you know, kind of stories of apocalyptic survival that 
our uh, civilization is addicted to telling, right? Like what happens if everything collapses and you have to sort of scavenge among the ruins to survive, which in various ways the people we'll be talking about had to do. In the East, uh, there's some places that are abandoned at times, like when Attila rushes into the Balkans, there's a stretch of territory that is abandoned. And later, you know, with the Arabs, the, the frontier was demilitarized and turned into a kind of dead zone, you know, stretching diagonally across Asia Minor. But these are places from where the population was withdrawn and where that were adjacent to areas of, you know, continued Roman occupation where you could just, you know, you were a refugee, you, you, you fled back into the interior, you know, civilization hadn't collapsed. When the Arabs, you know, conquered the East, when the Turks conquered Asia Minor and whatever, they, they brought their own systems of government and economy and exchange. And yeah, I mean, it was painful to go through those transitions, uh, but there was something on the other end. It might have been better or worse than what you were used to. Certainly it was different, uh, but it's not as if the whole system collapsed and you now had to go out and relearn how to do everything. And this is kind of what happened in Britain in the 5th century. In the course of a generation or two, which means that there were people who lived through this very wrenching experience. I was blown away by how Robin Fleming synthesizes the archaeological data and brings such incredible clarity, existential clarity, like what this meant for people who went through this um, in, in reconstructing this picture. Keep in mind, this is an experience that was relatively distinct to Britain. The same thing didn't happen exactly, you know, in the same way in Gaul or in Spain uh, when the Western Empire was falling apart. It hardly happened at all in Italy, except until later, um, like let's say the seventh century, uh, but due to very different factors in a very different context. Uh, so. If you want to take all of this as a picture into the declining Western Roman Empire of the 5th century, keep in mind that every region has to be examined separately. They had very different histories and trajectories, and even within Britain, there was a lot of variation in how this played out and how different communities uh, responded uh, to this challenge. Robin's work was also of interest in that she highlights what happens when areas of research kind of fall into a disciplinary gap, right? like this material is a bit too late to be of interest to historians and archaeologists of the Roman Empire, and a bit too early um, for those who are interested in like medieval England, especially those who view the sort of onset of medieval England as the coming of the Anglo-Saxons. This is no part of her story at all. All of this happened not because of any Anglo-Saxons or barbarians or anything like that, uh, but simply because the economy that was supported by the imperial apparatus withdrew. Um, and so that created a series of chain effects that we talk about. Uh, by the way, Robin has also written an, another excellent, um, very archaeologically driven history of early medieval England called Britain After Rome, The Fall and Rise, 400 to 1070, which I'm working through right now. I strongly recommend that book too. Very, very well-written, archaeologically-driven history, uh, the sort of thing that makes me wonder if I had another lifetime, I'd be. it would be fascinating to try to write a history of Byzantium like this, except you know, we don't really have the same kind of data um, as in England. 
All right, I'll stop there. Let's get right to it. Here is my conversation with Robin Fleming. Robin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. I'm very happy to have you here. I was absolutely enthralled by your books. Um, so the Material Fall is the one that I read and we're talking about, but I'm now also reading your earlier book, which is a, a history also archaeologically driven of Roman, um, a post-Roman Britain. And I have to say, yours is the best archaeologically driven history of anything I have read in a very long time. Oh, thank you very much. I So there are a number of sort of specialties that from which uh, scholars write histories. There's numismatists, epigraphists, papyrologists, right? They can all write histories, you know, especially Egypt, Anatolia, and whatever. But it's rare to get an archaeological history that's just so immersive and detailed. And it, it can't be done in my field, I think. I really wish someone would do that. But just for like, Byzantine studies in general, yeah. I don't think it can be done. And I don't have been thinking about why, but in part, it's because everything that I read along those lines is so um, noncommittal. It's right. it's always hedging and, and cautious. And, and in part, it's because the materials are very different. So I, I think that in Britain, there's just so much more archaeological work that's done and properly documented and everything. And uh, anyway, well, I, I, I do think that Britain has certain advantages. I mean, one of the advantages of British archaeology is that it's very well organized. And so there's a massive amount of unpublished gray literature, which is the literature that is being produced by um, by developer driven stuff. Right. There's a lot of development in Britain, lots of railroads going in, new roads going in, cities are being redesigned. And there's always archaeology before that. And a lot of that archaeology never gets published. And in other parts of the world, it never gets published and whatever archaeology is done sits in folders in somebody's garage. But in the UK, it's uploaded onto the Archaeological Data Service. So there are um, there are tens of thousands of pieces of gray literature available. So besides the publications that we have available, we have this mass of other stuff. So it does give a kind of richness and detail, uh, particularly to stuff that's being excavated you know, recently. Yeah, yeah. And it's so different what with the history of cities you know, in the respective halves of the Roman world, where classical archaeology for a long time destroyed all of the later layers and so right. left us with ru literally ruins. Right. Yeah. Bulldozing through the medieval uh, yeah. parts of the excavation, right, to get down to what's important, which is the classical part. According yeah, to yeah. No, it, I, I was really amazed by how you synthesize all this information and, and, and how you interpret it and Anyway, but, you know, I also but I do think that my superpower with the archaeology is that I'm a historian and I think historians are trained in thinking about narratives. Yes. And I think that if you come from a field that writes stories, it helps because archaeologists aren't really in a field where they write stories. I see. Yes, it is the confluence of both ways of thinking here that that produces these results. Yes. And, and, and I'm guilty of thinking your narratives in terms of like from texts like yeah you, you um, and the rest of the history profession that's okay <laughs> <laughs> but you all you also have texts yeah oh yes me. way more than i can even process yeah um yeah that's another difference okay well let's get to the book so people might be wondering what what the argument is that we're talking about here uh, so your book traces the material consequences for the lives of the inhabitants of roman britain of the withdrawal of the Roman state, essentially, um, and let's just say early fifth century, 
And you show that this set into motion a series of far-ranging uh, transformations in not just the overall economy, but everyday life of both elites and ordinary people. So can you set the stage a little bit by telling us uh, um, what had the Roman state done that was so important and at such high volume so that we can then understand the impact of its withdrawal? Um, sure. Um, one of the things that the Roman state did to its provincial populations is it taxed them. Um, and so um, all sorts of uh, systems of production and agriculture were organized around the pain of taxes to the Roman state. And those taxes, by and large, paid for the Roman army and for, you know, light administration um, throughout the empire. And one of the things the late Roman state in particular was interested in was food to feed the Roman army. And so they took lots and lots of taxes, as you know, um, in kind, and they took a lot of taxes in grain. And so in Britain, um, we, Britain was organized in many ways to help feed the soldiers along the Rhine, um, as well as uh, as well as the army in Britain. And so there's uh, there were very large systems of agriculture, transportation, and production um, that were set in place that basically fed the state and fed the Roman army. And so elites with large estates uh, were able to profit from the system. Um, ordinary people worked within the system as carters or barrel makers, and um, and the, there's a there's a market for what they're producing. But when the Roman state withdraws from Britain, and taxes aren't being raised anymore, what do you do with that production that is really geared towards the state? Um, and this is a period, of course, without refrigeration. It's a period in which foodstuffs, in particular, um, aren't kept very well or for very long. And so what happens the year that the Roman tax collectors don't come anymore? What happens when the 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 boats with gold and silver that arrive every year um, into Britain to help pay for the army and also to to back the the uh, ordinary currency of, of basement, the base metal currency of everyday life? What happens when those ships don't come anymore and the money isn't worth much? Um, so, you know, it's a, I mean, it's the same thing that would happen, I think. Um, today, if the state collapsed in the U.S., or we've seen states collapse elsewhere, um, where suddenly the the things you're producing have no market, um, the money mm -hmm. you use uh, have no value. Do you, so you teach in the U.S., do you find it difficult to explain to students, especially in an American ideological context, how taxation stimulates production? Because... I make this central whenever I teach later Roman history that yeah. it, it forces the production of a surplus that then spreads throughout the economy in various right. ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, and one, they, uh, they also, I mean, it, for, uh, on the one hand, they don't actually understand how important the state is and mm. how, how important things like taxes are. But on the other hand, when it goes away, they can't quite, quite believe that people might be better off at a low level, not producing all this surplus, but just kind of living within their means as a, as subsistence farmers. And so I think both sides of the equations are uh, equation are difficult for them. Yeah. And so you also talk about the, the networks of exchange that are linked to these state operations, the specialized skill sets, uh, you know, and crafts that are required by, of course, the monetary currency and so forth. Is can we put some kind of demographic estimates to this? Like, what's the population of Roman Britain, or like in the fourth century, or whenever? Just roughly, yeah. and 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 what is the demographic impact of like soldiers and state administrators? Just so we have a rough sense. Right. So the, I mean, the there are guest people have made guesstimates. Um, they're mm. not my guesstimates, but they range from 
of like one and three quarter million to three and a half million people um, mm. in Britain. And I, the truth lies somewhere, I think, in between. Um, so, I mean, it's very it's very difficult to tell, but the population was probably something on the order of what the population had returned to by the time of the Doomsday Survey. So by the 11th century, it looks like mm -hmm. the population of Britain is about the same as what the population of Britain had been um, in the late Roman period. In terms of Romans, well, everybody was a Roman, right? By the late Roman period, um, yeah, sure. you know, they, they were all Romans. And um, elites in Britain, some of them may have come from places like Gaul earlier on, and some of them might be uh, people who had cycled in as, uh, administrators from elsewhere in the Roman Empire. And we can see these people because we found people with isotopic signatures in their teeth and their bones that suggest that they're from the Mediterranean or, or from, from someplace warmer than Britain. But most people probably, including villa owners, are uh, indigenous, right? They're, they're natives to Britain. They're local elites who did well under the Roman regime. And so the it, there, you often hear in sort of the popular press and in um, popular books about how the Romans leave or the Romans go home and they leave everybody else behind. But, you right. know, because, because, so the, you know, some people leave, but mostly they're all still there trying to make a living, even though um, the Roman Empire has withdrawn from them. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that they're not, didn't grow up in and think of themselves as part of this world. Yeah, so there are a few thousand soldiers stationed there, right? Like what? Well, there's a there's a bunch. I mean, in the earlier on, there were really a lot of soldiers. Sure. Uh, based there, because Britain, um, the the state spends a lot of money to keep hold of Britain in a kind of, um, you know, in a way that doesn't make very much sense. But there's sort of ideological reasons why they want to keep this far flung uh, place within the Roman Empire. So uh, huge amounts of government dole um, end up going to Britain in the mm. first and second centuries. But in the third century crisis, a lot of those soldiers are withdrawn. And then over the course of the fourth century, more and more soldiers are removed from Britain and um, brought into places like the Rhineland. Okay, so all this surplus that's associated with the presence of the Roman state, uh, how is that distributed? Obviously, it's distributed unequally. So who benefits mostly from this? And what are some of the indicators of the prosperity that you see in um, in Rome, like down to about 400? Well, the, I mean, the the it's a it's a, a trickle up economy. You know, the people at the top um, do very very well in the late Roman period, yeah. and so in the late Roman period, the um, is really the apogee of Roman houses. Some of which are still having new floors laid in the three eighties. Um, so there there's this very late phase of people who seem to be doing very well out of this uh, Roman state system, um, but it's but. Um, there are other sectors in, by the fourth century that don't seem to be doing so well. And so there's a lot of, it, it's clear that there are uh, different kinds of communities and particularly more urban communities, not just cities, but roadside settlements and sort of big villages that have some, um, you know, they have some commercial business and they have some tradesmen as well. And those seem to be in quite steep decline by the late fourth century. And so it's mm -hmm. a very uneven sort of poor people seem to be getting poorer and rich people seem to be getting richer. Oh, I mean, that's interesting because you also document like a phenomenon that I've seen others talk about in like North Africa and so on, where rural communities start to acquire goods that had previously been restricted to cities and elite contexts. So there right. seems to be a, 
a greater distribution of, you know, material things that, you know, are either, you know, not elite, but elite adjacent or, or, you know, indicate some kind of prosperity. So, I mean, it depends on when you're talking about in the fourth century. The early fourth century is very, very prosperous in Britain. Um, But from the 360s on, things seem to be getting less prosperous. But one of the things that's very clear in the the early fourth century is that all sorts of goods uh, that are not made by ordinary people are being used by ordinary people. And so you get lots of sort of mass produced nails and everybody's got these hobnailed boots that they're wearing. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of low value currency. There's pretty nice pottery that is mass produced. All this stuff is being used by rural people in rural communities. And so it's it's a lot like the situation in, in North Africa in the fourth and fifth centuries, where you see peasant communities really taking up this mass-produced Roman material culture. Yeah. And really, um, it's much more obvious in the early fourth century than it is in, a, in, say, the period of the second century. Got it. And I have to say, Robin, I've never read a more thrilling account of nails. <laughs> <laughs> than in your book well that's a high praise indeed yes i know there's a lot of competition in that <laughs> no, no no it was it was really amazing i had never thought about nails that way um okay so um w- what did the majority of the inhabitants of britain get out of this system the roman system to put it in monty python terms what did the romans do for them yeah well i mean <laughs> I mean, this is this is something that I think about a lot. I mean, I think we live in these worlds that we're born in, right? And you're born in the Roman world and you're born in a Roman province. And that does certain things for you. And maybe it does other things that aren't so great to you. So, I, you know, I think that, I mean, there there are these things that happen to people because of Rome. Like they're, they're introduced to uh, particular kinds of... Um, crops and foodways, they're introduced into particular systems of production. Um, I mean, what does that, what does that do for them? I mean, they, you know, I mean, they, they live in, they live in this world and uh, would the world be different without the Romans? Well, probably, but we don't know what that world would be. So it's just a little counterfactual to think about what the Romans it is, did yeah. for them. It, it's very difficult to think also in terms of you can say something like, well, they provided military security and arguably, you know, having Picts raiding your village versus not having them raid your village is of significant difference. But we can't perform a control experiment here. So we don't know, as is the case with military spending today, like you can never know what exactly you're paying for right. all this because you don't know what the alternative would look like. And, and- you know, the Roman state is a pretty oppressive and violent state. I mean, they've, they've now found evidence for somebody who's been crucified in Britain, right? That's right. not a happy story. There's yeah. evidence of enslavement in Britain. And that's what there right. was enslavement, of course, before the Romans came as well. And that's not a happy story. So, you know, the state, um, you can have the state as the purveyor of violence, or you can have outsiders being violent against you. And, it, and it, so it's hard to, it, it's really hard to know what, um, what that looks like. What what I'm more interested in is really how um, these very particular forms of um, Romanitas develop across the Roman world. So to be a Roman in Britain is different than being a Rome in Syria or being a Roman Roman in Egypt. And I'm interested in how that mm. process happens and what it looks like. Because in Britain, it's clear that local uh, Iron Age cultures have a big impact on what it's like to be Roman in Britain, even in the fourth century. And so, you know, there is a kind of 
Romanness there, and people are living in this Roman world, but it's a kind of particular version of Romanness that sort of fits the needs of the people who have grown up um, in Britain, whose ancestors have been in Britain for a long time, and who come out of these Iron Age societies. Right. Okay. So let's walk through the what happens when the state withdraws. So basically, the armies are either called away to Gaul or decommissioned or whatever. The money stops flowing in, the exchange networks collapse, and in fact, you argue the entire economy sort of collapses and a whole range of production basically ceases. So let's start putting the pieces there in place. What kinds of objects that were previously common can disappear at this point? So you can go from the big to the small. So I'll start with the big and um, start with um, large masonry structures, right? So big baths, villa houses, big barns made out of stone, some of them with fancy floors, some of them with under um, underfloor heating. Those kinds of buildings require uh, very skilled work crews that know how to do all sorts of things. So you need you need people who know about glass and you need people who know about lead and mortar and stone cutting and how to roof a house. So you need so you, you need a lot of skill and not skill that's in the kind of uh, in the power of a single human being, but it, but there are lots of groups of people who work together to make this building. Mm. And as the Roman uh, state withdraws and as the economy collapses, it looks like these kind of um, these networks of labor that allow for the production of big things like buildings start falling apart. And so when you lose the people who know how to make plaster floors, there's nobody in your crew who can do that anymore. So you don't do that very well. And then you lose your roofers, or maybe you lose the people who know how to make mortar. And so gradually, you just can't make that big object anymore. And so these these big objects um, disappear, but smaller objects disappear as well, because the same uh, very complex labor networks uh, that require all sorts of different skills and all sorts of different people are also disappearing. So if you take pottery, it looks as if Roman style pottery uh, made in uh, the Roman way, which is on a wheel um, and fired in a kiln, um, it seems to kind of peter out by about 440. So after 440, people are either making hand po- handmade pots or there are large parts of Britain that are aceramic and they just don't have pottery at all anymore. Um, and that's because the potters know how to make pots, but they don't necessarily know how to make the um, the charcoal that's needed to fire their kilns, or they don't necessarily know how to get the shell that they use to temper their pottery, um, or they don't know how to make their kilns because some other specialist has made them. So even small objects go away because these very complex systems of production are no longer working. And so that means people have to make things for themselves. And so you get a much simpler material culture um, initially coming out of this. So people are living in wooden houses because wooden construction was quite widespread in the Roman period and there are more people who know how to do it. Um, and things like handmade pottery, well, handmade pottery is handmade pottery. You know, you can, you don't yeah. need a kiln, you can you can uh, fire it in a bonfire. Um, nice. You might not know how to temper it, but you know, you can make it. Right, and metalwork also disappears. But, well, some metalwork is about, I mean, it's one thing, the um, iron of, and, and uh, sort of, uh, non-ferrous metalworking, those skills are quite widespread in the Roman world because everybody needs a blacksmith, for, for example. So those don't go away. Mm. What what goes away is the production of new metal. 
And so it doesn't look as if people are, for, it looks like there's a hundred or so years where people aren't smelting at all. Um, they're recycling, that they're scavenging from Roman buildings. Um, so they still know how to work iron. They're just working recycled iron. Right. So would it be fair to say that the occupations that you mentioned earlier, that they had existed and thrived in Roman Britain because there's an economy of scale that can use their services, you know, in, on, on a large scale, and that enables these professions to exist. And once that economy of scale and the, all the surplus it produces goes away, those professions are now no longer viable, essentially. Right. They, yeah, they can't make a living anymore. Right. Um, and, and, and also, I think it's also because they can't do what they do anymore, because these um, these landscapes of production are falling apart, right? The, mm. They no longer know they're, they they're they're not connected anymore to communities that are providing with the, with raw materials that they need to make what they're making, or to markets that want what they're producing. And so, basically, um, I mean, smiths do seem to be um, smiths do seem to persist, but otherwise, specialist occupations, not really. They all seem to go away. Wow. Yeah, and this all happened in a fairly short amount of time. I mean, you documented like archaeologically very. Yeah. You you can get some kind of granular resolution here on these kinds of changes. They're not like Bronze Age level of you know over the centuries. This this, this happened pretty fast. Yeah, and the, I've been working with a bunch of people at Historic England on a villa site in Northamptonshire called Stanick, and there there's a villa that is having a lot of new work done on it in the three eighties. Um, and they're they're clearly Roman elites. There's lots of Roman coins there. It's clearly really involved in the, uh, the in these the kind of state production of goods. Um, and the people who control the site are are doing very well. But within about we have we've our, uh, radiocarbon dated a bunch of bodies that are buried under the floor of the villa after the after the villa falls down, and they're being buried in the in the 14s and 420s. So wow. this is within a generation that it goes from glamorous place to ruin. Right. Um, and that's that's pretty fast. Yeah, I was thinking about that as I was reading your book because, you know, our, our own age is obsessed with sort of apocalyptic scenarios and, you know, you hear all these things about how major cities have maybe about three days worth of food in them and when the supply networks, if, if they fail, like... As we know from the pandemic, right? Yes. <laughs> in the toilet paper, uh, the great toilet paper shortage of 2021. Yes, yes. Uh, and then you're you're kind of on your own. And, and this is something that was striking to me because it wasn't like, you know, multiple generations slowly adapted to this new reality. It was right. people who had to adapt to it within their own lifetime. Right. And in this context, you mention you use this concept called a life way, which I found fascinating the way you talk about it. Can you tell us like what that is? And can you give us an example about it and how it changed during this period? Sure. So, you know, the people, these kind of lives that they're dropped into, right? I mean, you're born in a society, you you might be a farmer, mm -hmm. you might be a potter. Um, but the 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 you and the people around you all live in particular ways. And so one of the things um, that I think of um, that is a good way to think about lifeways is the kind of food that we eat and the kind of the way we um, what we think is proper food. And in the Roman period, because they had these mass produced pots fired in kilns that had tempers that allowed pots to withstand a lot of heat, um, a lot of people in the Roman period ate stew. So you could put your pot on the hearth and it would make stew for you. And, uh, you know, what, what's dinner? Well, dinner is stew because that's what people eat for dinner. Um, but 
in the post-Roman period, when people are making their own pots or they don't have pottery anymore, and it's not tempered the way Roman pottery was, and it's not fired in kilns, that pottery, you can't make stew anymore. Wow. So suddenly kind of this thing that everybody did for hundreds of years just isn't a thing anymore, right? They, they, they can't do it anymore. And so that's a, you know, it, it's the, it's this mountain of little things, right? It all, everything changes and they have to find these kind of workarounds for making a living and having a life um, yes. because their material culture has disappeared. Yes, and you have some excellent examples of how they clung to the material possessions from the yeah. from the before time, and you know tried to make use of it for as long as it would last. And a little bit, it's like the inverse of my own relationship to technology, where I cling to things from the '80s for as long as I possibly can, even though they've been replaced by a much much better thing. Yeah, it's the yeah, exact opposite. yeah. There's, yeah, there's, yeah, there's nostalgia. Or you know, we have nostalgia for our, we have nostalgia for our things. Yeah. Uh, but it, but it's, I mean, it's interesting about it. one of the things I'm working on now. So I'm, I'm just finishing a book on dogs in Roman Britain and I'm interested in dogs because they're big sacrificial animals and dogs are sacrificed like crazy in the Roman period. And you find evidence for dog sacrifice. Every, I know it's a oh. little sad dogs. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them would have been strays, but still, um, but that goes away. That goes away by, by the end of the fifth century. It's very rare and people just aren't doing it anymore. And why? Well, I think the world has changed. And I think all sorts of things that used to work, the kind of big magic or the little magic that used to work doesn't work so well anymore. And so you move on to other things. So it's not just the kind of pragmatics of everyday life, but it seems like people are having the insides of their heads reorganized during this period in pretty profound ways. Yeah. And I found that the most interesting part of your Lifeway concept in, in that you, you trace the whole like the food chain from how it's produced to how it's prepared yeah. to how it's eaten and, you know, how even things are disposed of afterwards and so on. Like all of those things have to change and not just for people. So I'm glad that you mentioned the dogs because you talk about how animal life changed on the island as yeah. well, pretty dramatically. Can you give us some examples? And what made you look into that in the first place? Because they're animal bones. Right. I mean, you 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 have the evidence that you have and you have to figure out what you're going to make of it. So there's lots of animal bones. Um, so, the you know, in the Roman period, there would have been huge herds of oxen. Right. They're big. Uh, they're they're the animals that are used to plow, but they're also the animals that are used to haul things over land. And so there's lots and lots and lots of them. And there's not a need for all those oxen after the Roman state collapses. So mm. herds must have sort of been rebalanced and there's probably, it's likely that there's a lot more daring going on in the early Middle Ages because people are subsistence farmers and they're, you know, raising, mm -hmm. they, they need some milk and some cheese for themselves, but they don't need those big herds of dredge animals anymore. Um, so that that's one sort of the, a, a kind of animal that survives in Britain, but the kind of numbers, the demographics of, of cattle herds must change a lot. But there's lots of animals that go away. So the Romans introduced lots of animals into Britain and they do not survive the fall of Britain because they're as um, tied into and dependent on the systems of uh, the Roman economy as people are. And so um, some of them are very small, like all the it, many of the grain pests go away. So grain pests are a big problem once Rome comes um, and the grain pests just go away because large grain storage buildings are no longer there. Um, rats seem to go away um, and don't come back until the 8th century because there's not large grain storage buildings and they don't survive mm. very well. 
but then there are the kind of fancy animals that the Romans um, introduced uh, to uh, allow themselves to have the kind of ritzy and glamorous lifestyles of country gentlemen everywhere. So the hunting birds, the pheasants um, go away. The, uh, the the there are particular kinds of deer called fallow deer who are very have very big horns and are very stupid. So they're the kind of perfect animal for hunters because <laughs> they're easy to catch and then you can put them on your walls. Um, they go away as well. And these animals aren't then, again, reintroduced into Britain until the 10th, 11th centuries. Right. I had never thought of this aspect, the, the fauna of the Roman state. <laughs> like from and, the, rats... and plants go away too. The herbs, vegetable gardens, they stop gardening. Yes. So. Can you talk about that? That struck me because I, I immediately would have thought, oh, okay, so large scale production and markets. So these markets kind of go away. Cities are abandoned. Um, so people must have grown things in their gardens. And then wham, you hit me with the no gardens disappear. What do you mean by that gardens dis disappear? Well, horticulture seems to disappear. So people stick with the field crops that they've always stuck to. And there seems to be quite a bit of uh, people going through the hedgerows, for example, and uh, picking edible things. So there, there, there seems to be quite a bit of that going on. But a lot of this stuff... Um, was probably, I mean, it was it was very widespread in the Roman period. Things like cilantro, um, which mm. is a, a Roman introduction into Britain. You find it even on low-status rural sites by the 4th century, but it just goes away. Um, and people simply stop growing it, and along with a, a, with a whole host of other kind of vegetables. And so, I mean, why is that? Is that because really those people were growing for urban markets and they didn't, you know, I don't know, but it goes away. Right. But like, it doesn't go it doesn't go away in places like France. In France it persists. But right. so I think that shows something about the kind of the seriousness of the collapse in Britain that horticulture doesn't survive. Yeah, yeah. So it struck me like the whole the the whole foods part of the economy kind of disappears, right? right. All of the herbs and the specialty foods and specialty right. animals and all of these things. Well, and I I do wonder I mean if it, how much it has to do with women's labor because traditionally horticulture is a kind of female activity because it's close to the home and you can watch your kids mm. and you can garden at the same time. It's different than being out in the fields all day with um, with oxen plowing mm. and things. And it and it requires I mean you have to be in good shape, but it requires less upper body strength. So it's traditionally a woman's task. But there are all these other things that are traditionally women's tasks that may become more important after the fall. So, for example, if women are potting the way women in a lot of places pot, that time that would have been spent on horticulture is maybe now being spent on producing pots for the home. Um, women have to spin all the time because every bit of cloth, every rope, every sack is made from fiber that they're working. Um, and so it may just be that gardening is too expensive of women it's too demanding of women's labor to to have survived right because they have to do other things so speaking generally about how this impacted women and women's labor actually i just um posted an episode by anna kelly on that she's actually looking at the egyptian material oh yeah um that with the collapse of markets, um, a lot of the labor that used to be done by specialty uh, producers in bulk right. right now devolves to you know individual Households. families. Yeah. Right. So the women have to pick up a lot of the work yeah. that was previously done by like quote industry or workshops. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. Yeah. I, yeah. I'd be interested in, in seeing what. I mean, never, things never quite fall apart in Egypt, but I. Yeah. I'll be interested in listening to that. 
Um, oh yeah, no, it, no, no. They it's don't. very, they... you know, it's very, it's very obvious that something like that is happening in the, in Britain. Yeah, and I was really struck by your description of like abandoned towns, like it's ghost towns, and they just fall into ruin except for scavenging. <laughs> but actually, let's talk about that. So. I was also fascinated by your description of like professional recycling in the Roman period, like yeah. when a building had to be demolished, this, some crew descended on it and like stripped it professionally. Yeah. I had yeah. never no, heard it's, of it. It's, it's great. You know, so we think of, we medievalists tend to think of the use of spolia and recycling as either um, it's an attempt to... Um, to uh, sort of hijack Romanitas, right? You take mm -hmm. a piece of Roman building and you put it on your building and now aren't you, you're just like the Romans, right? Because you built this kind of Roman style building or it's about desperation. So that's, I think, how medievalists tend to think about recycling in their period. But in the Roman period, those Romans recycled everything and they did it in an extremely organized fashion. So metal is very, very, metal recycling is very organized. Glass recycling is very organizing organized in these building crews i mean they take there are people who recycle the glass the the metal the stone i mean they really take them down and the fact that that kind of organized recycling stops and scavenging household scavenging comes to take its place also says, speaks volumes i think about the collapse of the roman economy yeah, I was fascinated by the archaeological evidence about this recycling, where they literally just put piles of things. So they would sort the materials. This is incredible, right? Um, and so the so the metal work stays true. So you uh, you know there are a million types of alloys, right? But they're yeah. very careful to keep keep each alloy group together wow. so that everything wow. doesn't just turn into gunmetal. Yeah. So right. So what does this scavenging look like? Uh, well, again, it, I mean, this is a, a, another activity that I wonder if women are doing a lot of the scavenging because you find in the in the sixth and seventh centuries, women wear little bags on their belts and they put things in those bags and they're often buried with the bags still attached to their belts when they mm. die. And there are sometimes there are uh, bits of Roman glass in there, bits of Roman metalwork. And so you do, there's even a bronze theater ticket in one of these bags. Uh, so somebody's been, you know, somebody's been somewhere where there was a, where they found a Roman bronze um, theater ticket. Um, but it does seem to be, um, I mean, they, in some places, uh, it's pretty clear that they're recycling, they're looking for pottery. So where do you find pottery? Well, you find pottery in cremation cemeteries because people in the first and second centuries were cremated and then put in pretty nice pots. And so mm. if you're looking for pots, you can go and you can dig up some cemeteries and you can find some pots. Um, but I think more more important was the kind of recycling that was done to find metal because people weren't smelting metal anymore. And so I think people were really looking hard for metal work. Yeah. Um, but they weren't looking, you know, what they weren't looking for is stonework. They were completely uninterested in taking building stone and building buildings up stone, probably because they didn't have the the know-how because it takes too much knowledge. And so that kind of recycling doesn't happen until uh, a bunch of uh, Mediterranean monks come back into Britain um, and start using old Roman buildings and Roman material to build their churches. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine the frustrations here because pottery, while you know, it's archaeologically very durable as a as a complete sort of vessel that you can use is very liable to break. Like if a beam falls from the ceiling, it smashes the entire. Right. Yeah. So so they're they're looking for I mean, the people who are finding pottery, uh, useful pottery, they're either going through waster heaps and finding 
mm. you know, seconds in those waste or heaps. But that I imagine most of those pots are in pretty bad shape. Or they're looking in for closed contexts, which are things like there are ritual deposits of pots and there are pots and graves. And in those underground situations, they they are preserved pretty well. But that's really the only con- context that you could find a, a whole pot. Right. But otherwise, I mean, the metalwork must have been easier to pick clean. I mean, you talk about the, the nails and the hinges and right. all of these things. And there's a lot there's a lot of lead around in the fifth and early sixth centuries. You find it on you find in early medieval settlements and then the lead disappears a little, little bit. It doesn't look like it's so abundant anymore. And that's probably because all the pipework has been ripped out of Roman buildings by that point. And so it's right. all you know, it's all been it's all gone. So it's a finite yeah. source. Yeah. Yeah. And I, another recent episode I did was on lead and lead pollution in the Roman world, which actually brings me to my next question, which is like, so who benefited from all of this? Someone must have benefited or people must have benefited in some ways because so your book, you, you take a very kind of non-judgmental approach to what's going on. You, you're describing and explaining and analyzing and so on. You know, gloom and doom rhetoric about, you know, fall and decline and all of these. I mean, you know when you're talking about numbers, sure. Um, but um, there, was there an upside to all of this and for whom? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the period where everything is collapsing in Britain was really, really, really hard for people who were tied to the Roman state. So anybody who's living was tied to the Roman state, not just villa owners and uh, you know, government administrators, but people like potters who were probably selling a lot of their pots to the Roman state or the Roman state was making their lives possible. And those people had to readjust in a really grim way. Mm. But most people weren't those people. Most people were peasants, right? And most people knew how to do a bunch of stuff and they lived in the countryside. And suddenly they didn't have to pay taxes and their landlords didn't have much power anymore. And, um, so there is some evidence that life is a little bit better for those people. So um, the people, low status people seem to live a little bit longer, um, according to bioarchaeology. So mm-hmm. um, that's something. And and there are these, one of the things that I'm really interested in is you find these big pits um, in a lot of late 5th and early 6th century settlements um, that are full of animal bones and pot boilers. And it looks like people are having a lot of feasts out there in the countryside, probably because they're these big animal herds, right? That, you know, mm. aren't being used in the same way anymore. So I do think it, you know, it life may have been a little better for a while until it's established themselves again. And then it's the same thing all over again. You've yes. got somebody you have to pay taxes to and you have to pay rent to. But that takes a that takes 100 years or so to get itself reestablished. So there's a couple of generations in which I think people, maybe ordinary people, maybe as long as they don't want anything from the outside, you know, they have subsistence farmers who are, I mean, subsistence is a good thing. It's not a bad thing, right? They have subsistence means you have enough to have a party for your friends and a little bit left over to trade. And you have some, um, if, if bad times come, you have a little stored away. Um, but what it means, what it doesn't mean is you have enough to give to somebody else because they're demanding it from you. Right. And so, read... yeah. So subsistence farming isn't such a bad thing, and there's a return to that. And so maybe it's a a good couple of generations for people. <laughs> yeah, I've read some accounts. Um, I not for Britain, I think, but that skeletons in some of these places tend to get large. Like t- people get taller. That's so. That's always a sign that there's better nutrition yeah. in childhood when people are taller. But they also just if you if you estimate when they're dying they're dying a little bit later 
right. as well. Yeah, so, and there's so, less lead pollution. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Good, less crucifixion, probably. Right. <laughs> and all the plenty of sunshine, right? So there's less rickets aren't, uh, you know, working inside all the time. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I want to zoom out now and talk a little bit about sort of scholarly fields. This is a question that concerns me a lot in, in, in the podcast, but also in just my own thinking. You say that this period has fallen into the cracks between like late Roman studies on the one hand and I guess the field that has traditionally been called Anglo-Saxon studies on the other. And you, you have some very interesting observations about how exactly that's happened and why no one's focused on how people lived during this period that you're writing about. Um, so can you say a little bit about these fields and their priorities and how they're configured to create this blind spot? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, I blame it on the late 19th century as I blame many things. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, I, I think the kind of these kind of nationalist histories that rose in the 19th century where in England, you know, the Anglo-Saxons were very important for national identity. Right. It's this mm. new Teutonic people who and they're the you know, the the super people of the. Of, of the 19th century, right? And everybody wants to tie their ancestry back to it. And I think the field is still haunted in ways by this kind of, these kind of nationalist narratives that um, got developed in the 19th century. And people now understand there's a lot of difficulties and racism behind some of the categories that were, um, that were pushed in the 19th century, but nonetheless kind of cling to the, um, to some of the ideas. And, and for me, so the, the material change between the Roman period and the early medieval period, which I identify as the result of an economic collapse and people have a material culture collapse and people having to all the, the kind of stuff of people's life disappear. So they have to make new stuff that traditionally and for many generations has been ascribed instead to the coming of new people to Britain. Right. So it's not a material culture, but it's the German, you know, the, 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 the Teutonic people have come with their new material culture. And there's no doubt that a lot of people were moving in this period and mm. there are people coming into Britain and there are people leaving Britain. And um, so people are really on the move and a lot of people are on the move within Britain, but there are at least a million people in Britain whose ancestors were Romano-British and they are turning into these new sixth century people that we're going to call Anglo-Saxon, even though they're not, right? And so, so I think that the the reason why people haven't really looked at this transition period is that they're they're thinking about new people rather than the people who were there all along. And so, mm -hmm. and I and I think that that's a I think that that's a problem for the field, and I think it's going to continue to be a problem for the field because of the ADNA research. Um, it's going to take a long time for that to shake out. But a lot of that ADNA research is all about new people coming and wiping out and pushing out populations. And I think that's not going to stand. Um, but at the moment, that's what's making the headlines. Yeah, I've I've caught some of that in the in the press. Um, it's obviously, it's not an area that I research in depth or anything. So um, I'm, I'm glad I'm catching up on the latest word. Well, 10 years ago, when you wrote the um, Britain After Rome book, because you're exactly right. Like Roman historians tend to lose interest with, you know, they leave with the Roman state. <laughs> like, goodbye, Britain. Like, it, you're on right. your own now. Right. And you're exactly right. Um, as, as, as I told you before we started recording, I about 20 years ago, I did a very deep dive into like Anglo-Saxon period, like post-Roman Britain. And I, I, I learned Old English and, and so forth. And it's exactly as you say, like that 
it's like the history was written is to be configured around the new people and like with the changes that they made. Whereas right. the argument in your book is not about any, in, in fact, in the material fall book, there aren't any, um, because you're tracing the um, effects of the removal of a particular system of governance and economy. Yeah. It has nothing to do with new people at all. Right. And they, right. just... it, it happens in spite of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. Right. It just, it just happens anyway. But the, I mean, there's another problem with British historiography in, in one of the things that I, um, I think about a lot is the fact that British historians are very, very interested in empires and in colonial mm. projects and in imperial projects. And um, from the sort of 12th century on, a lot of the work has to do with these kind of colonial worlds or imperial worlds. But what British historians are not interested in is when they were the the colonial subjects of right. another empire. They have no interest at all. And hence, I am the only historian working on the Roman Empire, the Roman Britain, because archaeologists do it, but historians are not interested. Yes. Because, I don't know, because Britain starts in the 5th century, it seems a little odd to me. But um, there's no, you know, if you were a Roman historian, and or if you were a Roman archaeologist and paid no attention to the Iron Age, people would laugh at you. And yet, most mm. historians don't give a second thought to the Roman period, who work on the early Middle Ages. I don't understand it. Yeah. yeah but it's a, it's a problem of historiography. Yes. Oh, no, there are lots of these kinds of gaps. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a bit of an equivalent one in the East, but it's, you know, let's not get sidetracked by that. Um so another big theme um, in which one can see your book is operating is this sort of debate between fall and transformation of the Roman Empire. Now, I know that that kind of dichotomy is dated by a generation by now, um, but you, you you kind of stay away from it um, overtly. I was kind of wondering if you could, what, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, this is clearly a fall kind of book. I think it really depends on where you are in the yeah. Roman world, right? If you're in Alexandria, what fall? <laughs> what right? fall? Exactly. What what fall? I mean, if you're if you're in the dead cities in Syria, what fall? Right? But in Britain, something has changed pretty seriously. And there are parts of northwestern Gaul that you also see this kind of looks like something really serious has happened. But you know, along the Mediterranean, if you're in Arles, you know. Yeah. Things might, but you might be having though you might not be able to pay the garbage collectors anymore, and there might be a, a, some armies running around that you're not very interested in yeah. um, coming to your city. But it, it's all intact. I mean, the, I mean, one of the an, another sign. Well, there, there there are many signs of fall, a really serious fall in Britain. But one is elites don't survive, and the other is that Christianity doesn't survive. Right. Right. It survives in the far west where people aren't very Romanized, but it does not survive in lowland Britain. Yeah. And if that's we, not a sign, I don't know what is. You're exactly right. Um, and in Italy at the same time, nothing really changes. Not until the later sixth century yeah. with the Lombards. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's very much by region. Uh, actually, I was thinking about whether this something like this ever happened in the Eastern Empire. And I can't think of any. I mean. There's some minor things. I, I think I'm going to state them in the introduction. Uh, I don't think this ever happened really in the East. So it's quite extraordinary. And the, you describe it in, in, in such, there's such vividness. I mean, it's, it's really, well, thank you. Um, I had one final question. You dedicate the book to yep. Susan Reynolds. Yeah. Wh whom I had the 
pleasure and honor of corresponding with a few years ago we, because our interests kind of intersect, even though we're very different fields. Well, Susan was interested in everything. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah so um, why, why the dedication? What did, did you know her or how? I, I did. I, you know, I knew her since I was a graduate student. Mm. And um, she she was very good to me when I was, um, you know, a, a baby medievalist. Um, but, you know, we became friends over the years. And she um, but what she did was she really wanted people to pay attention to language, the language that they used. And she's really the person yeah. decades before anybody else said this that said, stop talking about the Anglo-Saxons yes. <laughs> and uh, really think about what you mean by when you when you're when you're describing people and i think that that's extremely important and she really taught me to watch my language yes and feudalism yeah oh no i i haven't i haven't used that word since yeah i was an undergraduate i think <laughs> yes yeah 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 all right. Uh, any final thoughts? Uh, leave our audience with or no, should... <laughs> no. But thank you so much for uh, for having me. It's been nice to revisit my book. It's been nice to revisit Britain and your company. So there. <laughs> All right, uh, Robin. Thank you for coming on. Take care. All right. Thanks so much.